There's a tradition on Easter Sunday where a leader or a pastor might yell out, he is risen, and then everybody responds, uh, he is risen indeed. If you're joining us at home online, maybe you yell so loud that your neighbor's above you, either left or right, but let's just do this together as an act of worship. He is risen. Amen to that. My name is Rob, and I get to serve as one of the pastors here. If this is your first time with us, thanks for hanging with us. I hope that everything that you experienced this morning is both helpful and hopeful. In life, we get to experience those never forget type of moments. These are the type of moments where details are vivid. These are the type of moments where if you go back, you can remember what was happening leading up to that moment. You can remember what was happening after that moment. You can maybe remember what you were wearing, sights, smells. The details are right there in your mind. That first Easter morning, as the disciples came upon the tomb, it was one of those never forget type of moments. But within these type of moments, there are certain objects that when you see them, it's like you're transported back in time, like you're there on site, breathing it, remembering it. For me, one of those objects is a ring box. If we go back to Valentine's Day 2011, I'd come up with an elaborate scheme to propose to my wife. I'm a detail guy, I like planning, so I had planned everything out. Uh, I had a 1972 Chevy Cheyenne, so it wasn't uncommon uh, that it would break down. And so my whole plan was to tell my wife we're going to have dinner. It's Valentine's Day night. And I'd gotten permission from her folks, and so they knew what was coming. And so I called up and said, I'm sorry, the truck's broken down. you got to meet me at the church, and, and we're gonna, I'm going to need a ride to dinner. And so she arrives to the church. I was a youth pastor, and so I'd got the youth room all romantic-like with candles, and I had, will you marry me up on the screen? So I, I put the, the blindfold around her. Now, that day when I picked up the ring, they asked me this question. They said, would you like to, to put a bow around the ring box? And I said, like, sure, of course. Presentation is very important here. So in this moment, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing her down into the spot, and I get down on one knee, and I, I say what I'm, I had prepared to say, and I get done with the big question, will you marry me? And her response was, open the box. I want to see the ring. In my mind, I was imagining like tears, and like, I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with you. Why do you need the ring? You get me. I did open up the box, and she did say yes. So when I see ring boxes, that's exactly where I go. I'll never forget that moment. What is it for you? What are some objects? If you've ever gone through family heirlooms before, and you see an object, it's like you're transported back in time. Well, for the disciples, that first Easter morning, as they looked inside the tomb and saw some strips of linen... They were taken back just a few days before that. You see, John's gospel tells us the details of that account. It says this here. John, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. This is a moment that's filled with both hope, but also confusion. 
One of our elders, his, uh, his son, uh, is a whiz when it comes to Rubik's Cubes. Have you seen people do this before? Like in 40 seconds, they like, can get it all perfect, and it's like, boom, here it goes. Recently saw him do that at a coffee shop. I was amazed. But also asking the question, how? Like, how does your brain work that way? We've had those moments of amazement, but also confusion, asking how. And this is what's happening here. Because the last time they saw strips of linen, it wrapped the body of Jesus, beaten and bloodied. You see, on Friday, linen meant the end of life. Today, when we say goodbye to a loved one, we'll bury them perhaps in some of their best clothing or a familiar outfit that was meaningful to them. In first century Judea, they would wrap the body with strips of linen and a cloth. And so on Friday, death didn't feel right. And on Sunday, it's interesting, death still didn't feel right. Because that's the thing about death. It never feels right. If we were to, to go back to the first book of the Bible when God created everything, and it was perfect and it was good. I mean, this is hard for me to fathom. A world free from sin and brokenness and disease and war and all of the things that frustrate you and all of the things that keep you up at night. Just perfect creation. Everything was good. Perfect relationship between humanity and God. Free to fill the earth, subdue it, to rule over the fish and the sea, and the birds in the sky, and every living thing that moves along the ground with a simple expectation. And that expectation was to help them experience freedom, but yet humanity said, I want to be God. We'd like to do things our way. And in breaking that trust, sin entered into humanity, and therefore humanity began to experience death. And humanity's first experience with death, their response was to run and hide. Death didn't feel right. And for thousands of years since that time, death has been a problem. Did you know that three people die every second, 180 every minute, 11,000 every hour, 250,000 every year? We might not all agree here on site and those of you at home online, we might not all agree on what happens after death, but we can all agree that death is a problem. For some people, as you think about death, it's this fear of missing out that comes to mind. You believe that after you breathe your final breath, something amazing awaits. It's good, and you long for it. And yet in your mind, your inner conversation is this, have I done enough? Have I been kind enough? Have I been good enough? Have I served enough? Have I been generous enough? What do people actually say about me? And I take all of that, and I hope that when I breathe my final breath, that's enough for me to experience whatever is good on the other side. And then there's another group that have this fear I missed out. That in the end, that's it. You just die, and that's the end. And so you live your lens through this mindset of regret. It's the bucket list mentality. All the things I need to accomplish before I check out. All the relationships that I wish I had or reconciliation I had made. Accomplishments that I had performed and done well in life and all the things, what ifs. 
Because in the end, it's the end. But then there's another group where maybe you live your life through the lens of shame and guilt and remorse. Because you're convinced on the other side of death is the worst possible version of hell that you've imagined. Because you're convinced based on how you've lived this life and the choices you've made that there's no way that what happens after you die is good. What's fascinating is that if we go back thousands of years, the thinking about death was not much different. Some describe that as the underworld. Some describe that as, as reincarnation. Some describe that as soul dissolution. But the common denominator is that death didn't feel right then, and it does not feel right today. And that's because when we were created, we were created to experience a life apart from death. And all of this tension exists that first Easter morning as John showed up to the tomb. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb and he saw strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Anytime you read a book, anytime you watch a movie, anytime you get an historical account, Anytime you listen to eyewitness testimony, details matter. And so it is in the Bible, details matter. Repetition matters. Because the author is trying to draw our attention to something significant that's happening here in this scene. Now, some would describe what happened that first Easter morning as a crime scene. They would suggest that the reason why the body was not there is that it was stolen. Well, if we were to entertain that thought for just a second, we'd have to overcome the fact that that was no light stone that was in front of the tomb. It would not be easily moved. We'd have to overcome the fact that there were Roman guards there. Let's just be clear. Roman guards, not mall cops. You could say, well, maybe they got paid off. Well, they would not have been able to enjoy their fortune because they would have been executed once they got found out. Well, maybe they fell asleep on the job. Again, once they awaken and it's their fault that the body's not there, executed, killed. So then maybe you think the disciples were like ninjas, like they had some of that ninja smoke, like they threw it down and they came in and moved the tomb, got inside the tomb, were able to pick up the body and carry it out. Or maybe it was grave robbers. But, but also not a good explanation because some of the valuable things inside the tomb were left there. But also, if you were going in to steal something, the object would be to get in and out as fast as possible. You certainly wouldn't take the time to unwrap the body. You certainly wouldn't take the time the details of proper placement inside the tomb. So the best explanation remains that the evidence says that the reason why there was no body was because that Christ indeed had risen. But these details are not just an apologetic for evidence of the resurrection. These details are an explanation. In fact, if we go to Hebrews, track with me for a second. Another book in the New Testament describes our Savior as a high priest. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to empathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. This is significant. 
Because if we go back to the Old Testament and Leviticus 16, we remember the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. And what would take place on this day is the high priest would enter into the most holy place with a specific purpose in mind. He would put on these consecrated garments and he would begin to perform sacrifices. First of all, on behalf of his own sin and his family's sin. But then he would also sacrifice the goat for the God's people, the sins of Israel. But it's interesting, the other animal was the scapegoat. The high priest would lay his hands confessing the sins of God's people, and then that goat would be released into the wilderness to carry the weight of God's people and the sin for yet another year. But after he was finished, what he would do is he would take off the garments, put them aside, purify himself with water, and continue to carry on with more sacrifices. So in this moment, John is pointing out the details of what was happening inside that tomb was the final act of atonement, the shedding of blood for humanity, both past, present, and future, a final offering once and for all. Jesus was unwrapping himself, making a statement to say, it is finished. You see, on Friday, linen meant the end of life. But on Sunday, linen meant the end of death. You see, from this point on, linen would never again be, be viewed the same way. As they looked into that tomb and as they saw the linen, all of the truths that Jesus once taught shifted from a place of wishful thinking to a truth worth dying for because death was not the end. In fact, in the days following the resurrection, one out of every 20 followers of Jesus would be martyred, killed for a truth that they believed in. But each time they would wrap that body in linen, linen would no longer be the end. It was simply a reminder from there to what was next. So, for you this morning, as you reflect on death, what does death mean for you? There's a show on YouTube called Hot Ones. If you've ever seen it before, it's, it's a really fascinating show because it's an interview that takes place while you eat hot wings. And so the host interviews people of influence, and there's 10 levels of spice to these hot wings. And so as you can imagine, the interview starts with these softball type of questions. But as you move further along in the interview and your face is on fire and your insides are on fire, that's when he leans in with the profound questions. And so in this particular interview, the host is uh, interviewing a comedian, producer, screenwriter, and it's level nine, which is 357,000 SHUs or Schofield heat units, which tells you the amount of capacent present in a pepper or the hot sauce. So he's on fire, and the host knows that the comedian is a nihilist. 
meaning that he rejects all religious and moral principles and that in the end, he believes that life is meaningless. And in this moment, he asks the question, what happens after we die? And his response is profound. He says, who cares? It won't affect us. His response is, is pretty profound if we think about it, because what he's reminding us is this. What we believe after we die has no bearing on what happens after we die. It's already figured out. But the gospel is this. The message of Christianity is this. If Jesus is risen from the dead, what happens after we die has no bearing on the life we've lived. It's entirely based on the life that Jesus lived and his life, death, burial, and resurrection. After we die, it's not about what you did or didn't do. It's what Jesus accomplished through his sacrifice and where you land with that. Either we believe it enough to give up our own life, or we don't. The Apostle Paul was one who also witnessed the resurrection of Christ and had his life transformed. And he wrote to a church kind of like us, wrestling with questions of morality, wrestling with questions of what happens after we die. And in the middle of a conversation about death, he reminds them this important truth, for what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, if you don't believe me, go ask them. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, one, abnormally born. If what I just read is true, that when it comes to death, death is not the end. Maybe you've been in a service before, or maybe you've been at a camp before, or a retreat before, where the pastor shares the gospel and begins to ask people to close their eyes and bow their head and leads them through a prayer. I've done that before. I've walked people through that prayer before. Maybe you've prayed that prayer before. Hear me. That prayer doesn't save you. A hand raise doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. His act saves you. His sacrifice saves you. He is the way, the truth, the life. He and he alone saves us. And either we believe it or we don't. Either we've turned our lives around and we're following him or we have not. You can't have one foot in and you can't have one foot out. It's like the movie Elf. Do you remember that scene where he's going up the escalator and he's full like stretched? When you go down the jetway to get on a plane, there's a gap between the jetway and the plane. You can't be elf in that moment and say, I've got one foot on the plane and one foot on the jetway. People behind you are going to get frustrated. It's kind of weird and confusing. 
you have to get on the plane and trust that that plane is going to get you to the desired destination. As followers of Jesus in faith, we cross over and we say, Jesus, I'm with you. Wherever you go, I go. It doesn't mean that the plane won't have turbulence because it will. It doesn't mean that you won't doubt along the way. It doesn't mean that you won't be frustrated or sin or fall short of all of those things. It means that you've got complete assurance and confidence and trust that he has you. And no one or no thing will ever separate you from his perfect love. So as you reflect on your relationship with Jesus, let us consider this. It is true that he is risen. And this is good news because that means that death is not the end. It is also true that each and every day from this point forward is a new beginning. See, for me, the fact that death is not the end is good news because I've wrestled with death since my childhood. I didn't get to meet either of my grandfathers because they passed away before I got a chance to even have a conversation with them. When I was seven, I lost my brother to SIDS. When I was in fifth grade, I lost two friends within 10 months of each other. One to a boating accident, another to a tragedy that took place while he was rollerblading. I learned a lot about death when I was in fifth grade. I lost my mom about a decade ago to a lifelong battle with alcoholism. I recently lost my grandmother who was like a mom to me. I look forward to eternity, a life free from death and school shootings and elections and pandemics, divorce and disease. But Alex, you, our middle school ministry coordinator, reminded me that Easter isn't just good news for the future. It's good news for the present. Because to follow after Jesus is to say, each day, I'm going to die to myself. Each day, I'm going to choose Jesus. Each day, I'm going to remember his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace and his perfect love and the fact that he always shows up. He's always there and he always perseveres. He is my counselor, my defender. He is mighty. I get to be with him. That's what it means for me. The death's not the end. How about you?